I remember Maureen McHugh, who is still an idol of mine, um, sitting me down and saying, this is how it starts for you. It's how it started for me winning the tip tree. And, uh, you know, next step, Hugo, um, you will go on to big things. And I didn't really believe her at the time, but it really was. It was the first step on the road that led to all kinds of places. You are listening to Geekdom Empowers, the podcast about people empowered through their geekiness. Welcome back! My name is Guy Hassan and this is Geekdom Empowers. Today's guest is fantasy and science fiction author Kathleen Valenti. Kathleen Valenti, or Kathleen M. Valenti, is the writer of The Girl Who Circumnavigated Fairyland in a Ship of Her Own Making, and the four books that followed it, Pamplicist, The Orphan's Tale series, and so many books you've probably read or heard about. She's a New York Times best-selling author, winner of the Andre Norton Tip Tree Sturgeon, Yuji Foster Memorial, Wrestling, Lambda, Locus, and Hugo Awards, and more, actually. Usually in Geekdom Empowers, we follow the paths of the geeks around the world who are not highlighted. And yet, Cat's Path, she said to call her cat, Cat's Path is exactly the path we talk about. She's going to talk about how, with the power of social media, before it was called social media, she got from knowing no one to what she is today. Social media helped her every stage of the way, including today when her Patreon gives her financial independence from the publishers and when she is not publishing books. It is the story of a rise to success of an author who came from nothing, knowing no one. It is the story of an author who made her own niche, which we also talk about, who kept her style and authenticity and who has withstood, as we'll see, quite a bit of terrible pushback uh, for some of the content she writes from fantasy and science fiction fans. I think you'll enjoy this interview. I think you'll actually get a lot from this interview. It is fascinating. Let's listen. Nice to meet you. Should I call you Catherine or Cat? That's fine. Everybody calls me Cat. Cat. Okay. Hello. Um, so this is uh, Geek Demi Powers. And I think, I'll assume actually that most people know who you are who listen to the podcast. Uh, and it's Geek Demi Powers, so it's about how people can be empowered by the geeky ways. And I yeah. think you're a good example of that. So I, I would like to, uh, to walk through the beginning of yoga, getting up to today in the new book mm-hmm. and all of that. But just, you know, because I think it's a very special beginning that, uh, <laughs> yeah. um, you know, it's not what people expect and it's kind of, it was your doing. So um, yeah. maybe we should talk about Diary Land and Life Journal and uh, Oh yeah, <laughs> we're going going right back. Yeah. Um, yeah, so Diaryland. I mean, I really think that hardly anybody remembers what it was nowadays. Um, it really was the first linked social media network, you know. And um, this was really, really back in the day, like 1999. And I know that there are people for whom that is not the day. Uh, but as far as blogging and um, social media, it really was. Uh, it was run by like one guy out of his house with all of his servers, but a lot of people were on it. I was on it. Um, I'd never been, a, and I mean, I was still in college. I was a junior in college. Uh, I'd never been able to keep like a paper journal or, you know, paper notebooks of writing practice. I have ADHD, and I think that's probably what was going on there. But um, 
I started keeping a diary land and people would kind of comment on it, which was very novel at the time. And uh, that that made it something that I could do. So I actually did just writing practice there for two years. Um, but, and I, I posted almost every day, sometimes more than once a day. And, and they weren't necessarily discrete stories, but they were, it was mulch. It was, um, you know, uh, just, just practicing a voice. Um, okay. figuring did you out write fiction or did you write uh, your um, Yeah, it was fiction, but it, it was, um, it was very kind of stream of consciousnessy sort of stuff. Um, yeah. You know, and, and I met a kind of network of, of well, we were all young then, young women at the time um, uh, on, on Diary Land. And we all became very close and we're actually still in contact. Like I, I if I pulled up my phone right now, I have a Slack where I can talk to them. Wow. Uh, the people that I met back then, we're all still um, still pretty close. We all have kids and careers and everything now. But we were we were just very young and passionate uh, people then. And so, you know, we would write these kind of epistolary stories back and forth to each other each of us would take a different character and it was it was a really you know safe little nest to be a baby writer in um at the time you needed what's the difference between diary land and and live journal live journal is like public yeah most of was was yeah live journal became much bigger but at the time you needed a code to join it because it was still in beta um but uh Live journal was much more interconnected. Diaryland was kind of old web in that there were rings. This is like there the younger people listening to this have no idea what I'm talking about. But there were like content rings, um, so you could be part of like a fiction ring or you know a fantasy ring or whatever, and then you would just like oh, click next and go to the next blog on that topic ring. Like I, I mean, flash back to that now. Yeah. 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 Like that, that was a long time ago, but like, and you, you know, some rings were exclusive and you had to get permission to be on them. It was a very strange time. Um, but live journal was just all very interconnected with, within its own ecosystem, uh, you know, presaging the future in, in a very real way. Um, and the concept of sort of friends or followers was, was really alive on live journal. And, and, you know, I don't remember what they called them on diary line, but I had like 200, friends or followers or whatever it was and frankly I was considered one of the like seminal huge diary land accounts um so <laughs> like the the numbers really boggle the mind when you think about what, what counts as a big follower or account these days I think I think a big difference between today and uh and then was that because it was so new only people who were really intense about it were in it. So yeah. Each one of those yeah. 200 people really, at like 99%, of them, really read your stuff, really cared, mm-hmm. really, uh, yeah, was yeah. intense about it. So what ended up happening for me, I got a code, was that I used Diaryland for writing practice and I used LiveJournal as a blog. You know, I, I talked about just what I was doing that day and I was living in Japan uh, very shortly after that. So I talked about my experience with that and it was very conversational whereas um and essays and stuff and and Diaryland was was my fictional voice where I was kind of working on that um so they I used them for different things um but I made <laughs> I mean I mean I, I made there was a time when everything good in my life came from live journal um like I'm I'm literally I'm sitting in Chicago in the house of somebody that I met because of live journal Right now in 2021, mm-hmm. um, you know, they are, many of these people are still part of my life. I've met all of my friends. I met my my ex-husband um, and I, I got my first writing contract uh, through somebody that I met on LiveJournal. Um, so I, you know, 
God, this is ancient history. So uh, I, I, <laughs> I wrote, um, wrote a book called The Labyrinth when I was 22. Uh, and I, I was living um, in Rhode Island, in Newport, Rhode Island. Uh, and I had I had heard of this new thing called nano nanoremo or nanoremo. Um, I think we were all still arguing about how to pronounce it back then. Um, many people know what that is now. They did not then. It was only the second year. So I was like, that sounds really cool. Um, but as I was 22 and full of uh, <laughs> full of beans, as I say to my my young son now. Um, I said that I didn't want to wait till November because I knew I was moving in November, so I wouldn't be able to do it. And um, I, I, I thought that 30 days was for uh, Wimps and I was going to do it in 10. Uh, so I did. I wrote a novel in 10 days uh, as I was working as a professional fortune teller at the time. I would just pull up my computer between readings and work all day and then through the night. Um, you worked as a so fortune teller? I did. That was that was uh, my job at the time. Like uh, someone you call and tells you your fault? No, no, in person, cards. Um, yeah, in I, I worked in um, in a like gothic stone tower, truly the old armory in Newport, Rhode Island, um, which has a lot of shops in it. One of them was like a hippie crystal shop, so that's where I worked. But I worked in the storage room next to them, which sounds dire except that it was the storage room for the Rhode Island Shakespeare Company so it literally was this stone room full of props so like I read on King Lear's throne like York's skull was in there there's all this stuff from Shakespeare it was amazing um so that was my my day job uh so I had this manuscript and I knew it was an odd manuscript I knew it was not um you know the usual kind of thing. So I submitted it to a bunch of small presses and I got rejected. And, you know, I got a lot of emails that said, this is the most beautiful thing we've ever read and we're not going to publish it. <laughs> I was like, I don't, I don't get it, man. I don't, I don't know what that means. Uh, but I was on live journal and um, there's a guy named, named um, Nick Mamatas and he uh, had just had his first book come out with prime books. And um you know, we'd been talking for a little bit, uh, uh, the way you talk on live journal, you know, uh, regularly appearing in someone's comments. Um, and I, I asked, I, I said, look, I'm not asking you to like read my stuff or anything that's gross. Uh, I'm saying like who right now is open to submissions of weird stuff. Um, and he gave me a list and I said, okay, well, they've all rejected me uh, except for prime books and they're not open to submissions. And he said, they're open. They just don't want to read slush. So send it to me. And if I like it, I'll send it on, which was incredibly kind of him. Uh, he did not have to do that. And uh, you know, it, it does everyone good to know and remember that we all do try to help each other in this industry and I was helped in the beginning and I have tried to help people and pass that yeah. forward. Um, and so uh, he did read it and he did like it and he did pass it on. And um, I'd moved to Japan by that time. So I, I will, I don't think I'll ever forget um, <laughs> opening up Yahoo mail as one did back in the day. Uh, and I had an email from Jeff Vandermeer um, saying that they were going to take my book and he wanted to write the introduction. Um, wow. And that was the beginning. So all of that came through Live Journal. Uh, the, the vast majority of my my you know friends that I've had for years 
um, came that way and, and uh, my career came that way. My, my, my former marriage came that way and um, all of it came from LiveJournal. That's amazing. That is. It's the power I of social media. It, 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 does, it does bring good things sometimes. It's a, it's a, a lot it, of that too. <laughs> it's a lesson to, to new people trying to break in, trying to, you know, about the, 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 the value of uh, social media when you have nothing. Like mm -hmm. Really, no, 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 don't know anybody, and you have nothing. Yeah, and yeah, and I, I knew, no, I knew no one in the science fiction and fantasy field. No. I had <clears throat> gone to college for classics, um, you know, ancient Greek and Latin. So, like, I hadn't been, um, and I went to college in San Diego, and I never went to Comic Con or anything like that. I was too busy. Like, uh, I mean, Comic Con was not what it is now back then, but um, I, I didn't know anything about geekdom. I just was a lonely geek with no friends you know yeah. I didn't know about the community out there um so I really was nothing uh, I, I was nothing and no one I had a small following on so on social media and that was it and we didn't even call it social media back then we just called it blogs um and I I mean I think part of it is that I did I I didn't approach him you know asking for anything I just wanted you know a little bit of information um, I think if I had sort of asked him flat out to read my stuff, that would not have gone over well. And I, I would never do that. You know, that's there, there's protocols to this stuff. But mm. he, he um, you know, it's he gave me my chance. He did. It's amazing. And, and then the next step, I think, is crowdfunding. Well, uh, yeah, there's a little bit between there before the crowdfunding stuff. So I wrote a couple more books for Prime and then I, uh, I turned in a manuscript and my editor at Prime you know, uh, who, who's never quite been so uh, munificent before or since, but uh, said, this is a lot more commercial than what you've been writing. Um, I'm going to send it to my friend at Random House, at Abandoned Factor. Wow. Um, and it took months to hear back from Abandoned Factor. They said that they really liked it, but they wanted to see the second book before they made a decision. And they said, but your editor says that it's almost done. So that's fine, right? I was moving from Japan in four months and I had not started it. So uh, that was when I had to really kind of use those skills that I learned writing a book in 10 days to turn out a really large book in, in, in um, less than four months while making an international move. But I did. And then I guess I moved back uh, in February, 2005 and in June of 2005, I got the offer from Bant Inspector, and that was The Orphan's Tales. Um, so The Orphan's Tales, first book came out in 2006, second came out in 2007. It was four books, but they combined it into two. It is a spectacularly beautiful object. Like it is, They hired Michael Kaluta, who's this iconic comic writer. Uh, if you think you don't know who Michael Kaluta is, but you like comics, you probably do know who Michael Kaluta is. You would recognize the style. It's very distinctive. Um, and so it's this gorgeous huge, you know, deckled edges, like every bell and whistle you can imagine is on this thing. Um, and uh, like two pretty important things happened around the Orphan's Tales that would kind of really have a ripple effect um, down, the, down the way. And one of is that I met a woman named S.J. Tucker, um, who's a singer songwriter uh, and a beautiful human being. And um, we were sisters the day we met and we've been, um, we got to cry. Uh, and we've been, we've been sisters every day since we had our sons um a month apart to the minute uh wow. in, in 2018 um and uh she's just one of the biggest lights of my life 
Uh, I was a big fan of hers before we met and uh, she ended up writing an album based on the Orphan's Tales and uh, on the sequel as well. And she did one for Palimpsest and one for Fairyland as well. Uh, and we toured a little bit doing reading concerts and no one understood what we were trying to do with this multimedia show, like no one got it. Uh, so we, we, we did it in some strange venues only to get stranger as the years went by. But um, so with that connection happened um, and I won the Tiptree Award, which is now the Otherwise Award. Uh, and that was the first award I ever won. Uh, it was a huge step in terms of like people having any idea who I was and reading my work. Like I went from, you know, just this girl who had been in Japan for my first three books coming out. So never had a chance to go to a convention, never had a chance to meet anyone. It was all online. And then I suddenly was there and it was awkward because everybody was friends and I didn't know anyone. It was like high school in the cafeteria. Mm -hmm. um, and, uh, but that was a big, a huge step. But I remember uh, at WISCON, it was only my second WISCON, only the year before had I, you know, even had a chance to go to a convention at all. WISCON was my first convention. Um, I remember Maureen McHugh, who is still an idol of mine, um, sitting me down and saying, this is how it starts for you. It's how it started for me, winning the tip tree. And, uh, you know, next step, Hugo, um, you will go on to big things. And I didn't really believe her at the time, but it really was. It was the first step on the road that led to all kinds of places. Um, so the Orphan's Tales came out and then um, Palimpsest came out. Wait, what did the change feel like once you won the tip tree award? Like, what did you feel? I mean, people knew, who, people knew who I was. People suddenly wanted to, you know, have their book signed at a convention instead of sitting. My first signing was between John Scalzi and Elizabeth Bear, and like nobody came with a book for me to sign. Mm -hmm. I was like, I'm never doing this again. This is terrible. Um, like I, I had a presence. Uh, people were aware of my work. Um, and, you know, Midori Snyder uh, had been one of the um, judges that year and Terry Windling I met at, at that convention where it, the, the award, where I got the award. And, um, you know, I, I just was suddenly able to meet people who, you know, kind of like Michael Kluda, I think I thought the year before that I didn't know who Terry Windling is until like I looked at my bookshelf and saw all of the Windling Datlow anthologies from mm -hmm. when I was a kid. I was like, oh no, I do know who that is. I just never knew what her face looked like because that's not something you learned when you were a bookish geek back in the, 90s and early and late 80s um but yeah so so the the orphan shells was a big deal um and you know I, I could I could go to a convention and I could ask to be on programming and like people wouldn't ask for verification that I am a writer you know <laughs> like people knew who I was a little bit mm -hmm. um and the, and the book got a lot more um kind of presence um it was pretty different than really a lot of things that were coming out at the time. I mean, I, I, it's hard to explain to people how quickly things changed in science fiction and fantasy. Like I won the um, tip tree, I guess, in 2007. Mm -hmm. uh, and, you know, I won it for a book that, it, it, I'm not saying it's not a feminist book, it is, but I won it for a book who, whose great, you know, innovation is just being, female forward and uh you know like centering women in the narrative there is some you know sort of non-binary stuff in there um and there's you know quite a lot of gay content there always is uh but like it's not 
it's not a radical book, I would say, in any way, and it wouldn't be recognized as radical now at all. Um, but, you know, diversity was something that people were still discussing the value of at, in, on convention panels um, in the mid-aughts. Uh, so things really changed very quickly. Um, so yeah, everything kind of, everything changed for me with the Orphan's Tales. And then, and then there was Palimpsest, uh, which really and truly did change it. Everything that was left to be changed and a few things that I thought couldn't change anymore um, came from Palimpsest. It, it, it was, and in some ways still is, this little engine at the core of my life. Um, it's a weird book. <laughs> I'm not going to say it's not a weird book. Uh, I, I have made people laugh over the years by pointing out that my publisher and I really did think it was more commercial than The Orphan's Tales. Uh, it's a very strange book. It's about a sexually transmitted city. Um, it is adult with a capital A, has a bunch of sex scenes in it. Um, it's and, and it's a very queer book. Uh, there's four protagonists. They're all bi or pansexual. Uh, and that was considered shocking at the time absolutely shocking and it's again hard to explain to people that simply having four queer protagonists in a book in 2009 got me death threats like that it was that yeah. okay. um so I wrote this book called Palimpsest and and uh then the economy crash <laughs> the, well, uh, I, need to, I need to go back to death threats. yeah 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 I'm, I'm from uh Israel so I've seen what happens when people uh, express uh, beliefs that are too radical for people to handle? Yeah, uh, my grandfather got uh, death threats. Um, so, so how did you handle that? Um, well, honestly, part of the reason I think I'm rushing a little bit is that I don't talk about palimpsest very much anymore for that reason because it was so painful. It was so painful and so shocking to me. Um, to to have that response and and a lot of it, it I mean almost all of it happened after it got nominated for the Hugo because it hit an audience that would never have chosen to read it off a shelf and yeah. you know the Hugo voting audience was much more conservative back then um, and it just seemed to infuriate so many people after the nomination and I would get I would get um, I would get comments on LiveJournal and I would get emails that were just vile and, um, you know, telling me that I needed to be reported to the police or otherwise taken care of or that I'm a deviant and a pervert and, you know, science fiction needs to be cleansed of people like me. And this is all just because I put queer people in a fantasy book, man. It's urban fantasy. Like, there's nothing. I just, like, it... it <laughs> I don't really understand why it made them so angry, but it did. And um, I just got really, really sad. Uh, I knew I wasn't going to win long before I went to Australia. Um, it's, you know, it's pretty clear when people are talking to you like that. Um, you know, there's no way that you're going to come out on top of all that. And uh, I was just so sad because I had discovered this community of, of geekdom that uh, had really become my home. All the conventions and all the mm -hmm. people and the, you know, my colleagues and fans and friends and all these beautiful things had come into my life once I found this world and to have it, to feel like it turned on me 
like that was awful. It didn't. It was just a you know small population of it, but I had never experienced that before. I mean, maybe a little bit of the way the woman on the internet always deals with that stuff, but not from my own community and not not from people who clearly read my book. And you know, I usually feel like if you got all the way through a book of mine, you know, like we could probably have a conversation. <laughs> but uh, like these people were just absolutely unglued by by what they had read of mine and it was really hard it was really hard so I don't talk about it a lot because it was genuinely traumatic okay and on the other side of that this same book is the book that got got you even more you said it got yeah so um the economy crashed my publisher uh Benton Factory was reorganized into Random House so it no longer exists now um and all that happened just to just eight weeks before the book was supposed to come out, which is kind of your publicity window. So SJ Tucker, as I mentioned before, and I, um, and our partners, we we got in her truck and we went from Maine to LA for four months doing these reading concerts that no one understood again. Um, we did one, one of ours was in a sports bar. That was one of the most <laughs> bizarre uh, performances of my life. Um, and everywhere we went on this tour, we were just selling copies out of the back of the, truck because we knew like if, if this book completely flopped that was probably it for me um you know the second orphan shells book hadn't sold that well another kind of disaster out of a new, big new york press and and it wasn't going to go great so we made it a middling success with all that work and it was nominated for the hugo and then everywhere i went on that tour people were asking about the fairyland book because it is a book within a book in palimpsest it's the main character's favorite novel from when she was a little girl um and it was just a fake book. We had we'd, we'd done an, an ARG, an alternate reality game for Palimpsest to do everything we could to sort of promote it. And- Oh, um, oh that, that, that passed by really fast. You didn't <laughs> again, say that again? Slowly. Yeah, we did an alternate reality game for Palimpsest. Yeah, which like a box game. And no, um, so again, I think, feel like this was, these were all the rage and in a very short span of time. It's um, it's a it's a game where you follow clues online, but the clues can bleed oh, into real life too. So like you might you know sign up on a website or something, you get a phone call or so it's something that would sort of feel like it was real life, um, and it was used largely for promotional stuff because it's so much work to create one. Um, I don't think I really understood until I did one just how much it is. But like Halo had one of the most famous ones and. It was a thing at the time. So we did a little one uh, for Palimpsest and there was a book trailer uh, that, you know, had kind of the rabbit hole. So if you followed the link at the end of the book trailer, then you would start this game. Mm -hmm. um, and so part of one of the little Easter eggs you could find as part of that game is an Amazon page for that Fairyland book. Um, it's just, it's all fake. And if you, it does, you know, they're out of copies, but if you were to email the person, the, the used, the used bookstore that has a copy, then that would be another step in the game. Um, so that's the other thing they're like, they're very undirected. Like you, you have to kind of figure out what mm. the next step is to move on. Um, so you like, you could be forgiven for thinking it was a real book when you, we don't often look at URLs when we see, you know, that Amazon page. Uh, so people would just ask like, where can I get a copy of that? It sounds really cool. And I was like, no, no, it's just like postmodernism. That's what we do. Uh, but I got home and my ex-husband had been laid off from 
two different jobs <laughs> within a few weeks of each other uh, as we were all really struggling and um, we, we didn't have money for rent. So I, uh, I said, well, I'll do a serial novel online. And I did. And then I figured that everyone had been asking about the Fairyland book and no one would ever publish a children's book that was so deeply connected to a very adult book. So I wasn't losing anything by giving it away for free online. So I started writing Fairyland and I put a donation button on the website. It was just hosted on my website. This was like Kindle had just, this was 2009. Kindle had just started. Um, Kickstarter had, I'm not even sure that Kickstarter had launched, but if it had, it was very new. Um, so it was just on my website. This is the lowest tech thing you can imagine. PayPal. Uh, yeah. And this was the crowdfunding. Yeah. So there was just a donation button that said, donate whatever you think the book is worth. If you can't afford to donate anything, don't worry about it. Um, and it it went viral really quickly um, in about 36 hours uh, of the first post. And um, Neil Gaiman was posting about it and Boing Boing and Cory Doctorow were posting about it. And, and um, it just kind of was a perfect storm. Uh, and it was, I think it also, it was content that like, it was feel good content that people could share with their kids. You know, everyone kind of like now everyone was feeling pretty down. And so I think people wanted to, they wanted to help and um, you know, I help somebody and I, I was that somebody. And then as the book went on, like people really loved it. Um, I remember, uh, you know, going to the first convention after I had started writing it and like, it's all anybody wanted to talk to me about. Um, and then uh, yeah, so I, I stayed a little bit ahead of the posting schedule so that I could kind of edit a little bit as I went along and I had recorded myself reading every chapter. Um, and yeah, so I have my, it. it's, it's really, you do a really great job. Thank you. Yeah, I did the audiobook too for the first book. Um, yeah, so my, my agent sold it um, to Fiona and Friends. And uh, then the year after that, <laughs> It wasn't out in print yet, but it won the Andre Norton Award, um, the Nebula for YA, uh, oh. uh, before it ever came out in print, which is, uh, as far as any of my research says, the, is, is the first time that's happened with a self-published book, um, uh, with any major literary award. And um, the year after that, it debuted at number eight on the New York Times list. So that was kind of like the first stage of my career there. Wow. Yeah. And once like i i want to cover a few things i just don't know yeah, which, no which comes first uh because I, I want to move on about how how let's let's move on to the other thing i want to talk about fridging for a second like for oh example. sure yeah yeah. because yeah. that seems very important and <laughs> podcasts we talk about many yeah. people who are not not friends of superheroes but actual people who are you know yeah. down by the society they uh they're in yeah. Um, so what is fridging and how, how did you do Oh, yeah. Well, fridging, refrigerating, um, Gail Simone came up with the phrase, uh, the iconic immortal uh, comic writer, um, to describe uh, what happens to women and girls in comic books if they, you know, come near a superhero or are one. Um, I think actually people miss a lot how many cases on that list are female superheroes. It's not just, you know, uh, regular people and, and superheroes. So. 
uh, it comes from um, Green Lantern. Alexandra DeWitt was literally killed and stuffed in a refrigerator for Green Lantern to find. Um, but women who are killed, raped, driven mad, uh, you know, lose their children uh, or otherwise have terrible things happen to them in order to further the plot line and motivation of the male protagonist. And it happens a lot. Um, and if you think it doesn't still happen, uh, it happens all the time in comic book movies, even if people are trying to do better in comic books. Um, the last Deadpool movie did it twice <laughs> in one movie. Um, three times, technically, if you count the daughter. So, uh, and the, I mean, the fact that in like Deadpool's most recent promo, he actually calls himself out on it is starting to get a little too meta for me. Like you, you did it. You're not allowed to be the person that says it was bad. Um, but yeah, so I, you know, as somebody who uh, has, you know, grown up with comic books, um, I'm not as clever as Gail and Simone, but like comic books always were, were rough reading for me because there weren't very many people, you know, for me to identify with that didn't get horribly maimed or murdered or something else. Um, but I wrote a book called The Refrigerator Monologues, uh, which is where we're heading. Um, and that came out in 2017. Um, I don't think I really made the connection except that we were talking about the old days. Um, it's kind of like a mini Orphan's Tales, really. Um, Orphan's Tales retells, you know, sort of every imaginable folkloric tale type um, and has this complicated uh, frame narrative. The Refrigerator Monologues has a much simpler frame narrative. And then within that frame narrative, also retells the, the stories of superheroes as though they're fairy tales, as though they're um, mythology. Uh, it's the same kind of technique. It's the same sort of thrust using a, a fiction to make an argument. Um, when I, I knew, I, I wrote it in part because I was so angry at the, the last Amazing Spider-Man movie with um, Emma, Andrew Garfield and Emma Stone. Um, and it's not that I didn't know Gwen Stacy dies, I did. I just thought they would keep it to the third movie in the trilogy and everything in the pacing <clears throat> of the movie and everything seemed to indicate that. So I was kind of taken by surprise uh, when literally the last thing she says is I can do things for myself and then flounces off and immediately gets herself killed. I was just so angry that that's what they, did and chose to do and just so angry about it all in general. Um, and I was ranting to uh, my now husband at a restaurant afterwards. And I said, I'm going to write <clears throat> something called the refrigerator monologue. It's going to be the, the vagina monologues for superheroes, girlfriends. Uh, and it, I mean, I think that was probably, I don't know, was that 2014 or 2015 that book came out, that movie came out. I don't know. Um, but not very long after I did, I did write it. Um, and uh, I, I knew that he said at the time, he was like, but you don't own those characters. So you can't, you can't write those things. And I was like, that's fine. I'll just, I'll make a, a unique um, analog Marvel DC crossover universe. And I'll, I'll, I'll do that. It'd be fine. People will recognize it. So it did. I, I like, I made my own versions, like not the exact same. They don't have the same powers and, and, you know, not the exact same things happen to them, but there are sort of archetypal things in common. If you have ever read a, a comic book, you, you will recognize who these people are. Um, but it, it is its own internally satisfying universe. Um, 
So yeah, that's the refrigerator monologues. How was that received? Uh, very well. Um, it, it's, it, 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 it sold as a TV series when it was a casualty of COVID, unfortunately. But um, it, it was very well liked. Um, it's been very warmly received by um, comics fans. I, I still hear uh, from fans about it every week. And, and um, yeah, it seems to have gone over very well. And, and do, do, do you think change can be really affected through things like this? I mean, through my book? I, I don't know. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I mean, I do, I do think that, you know, there, there wasn't a lot of room for the things I was writing when I started out. And now there's a lot of room for it. And I do think I was kind of part of that. Um, as far as, I mean, <laughs> writing a, a, a prose novel about comic books is not necessarily the way to change the comics industry. But um, I think Gail Simone has changed comics. I think that that idea that's that so beautifully, succinctly phrased idea um, has, has managed to percolate. I think that the way that she writes her own comics and the runs that she's had on various, um, you know, totally seminal superheroes uh, has changed comics. I think that the influx of women writers and people of color and queer writers in comics um, has changed. I think that there is a lot of change. Comic books themselves are a lot better now. Comics movies are not because those are still you know, run and written by a bunch of white guys in Hollywood who, uh, you know, don't care about this stuff. They don't care that, you know, a comics writer made a really good metaphor that called everybody out one time. You know, they only care about that as a joke in a Deadpool promo. So, you know, Black Widow was fridged, <laughs> you know, of all people. Uh, so it's, it's, I don't know that it's getting better and kind of looks like it's getting a little bit worse in, in some of the uh, comics movies, but, uh, and TV shows, but, um, as far as comic books go, I think things have changed a lot. Um, I don't think that that's down to me in any way. That's down to Gail and a lot of other feminist writers who have tried to make things better. Um, and, and as well on the, the race and sexuality side. Um, but I think that Refrigerator Monologues has certainly you know, made people think a lot. The people who read it have all talked to me about, well, not, I mean, lots of people have read it. <laughs> Many people who have read it have talked to me about um, how it made them rethink certain things. Uh, because it's not, I mean, the book is not all about fridging either. I basically used it as a chance to talk about everything that bothers me in comic books. So, mm -hmm. uh, and not just not, not comic books, but it's superhero comics. Um, so, you know, there's a lot in there, but I, I think that, you know, if we're talking about my influence on the field, it, it probably comes elsewhere than, than, than with refrigerator monologues. I think that, um, I think the change we've seen in comic books, uh, uh, it goes on Gail's column and a lot of other people. I, I wonder if eventually maybe we'll talk to her if she'll agree and, uh, mm -hmm. uh, about that thing. Uh, eventually, just because I'm not sure she'll agree. <laughs> um, uh, I, I want to talk like, before we get to, to your book, I think, I think I saw on your webpage, there's a Patreon. You have a mm -hmm. Patreon, right? Yeah. And that's the important thing for me here is uh, uh, um, it's kind of a way to be able to sustain yourself regardless of the publishers. Yeah, it's and amazing. It's important, even though you're successful. Yeah. No, uh, <laughs> um, yeah, Patreon is amazing and you know, a lot of us artists rely on it now. I certainly do, um, particularly having had a kid and having uh, had to take time off. I wanted to say that when I was talking about Palimpsest being uh, the sort of engine of 
my life. Not only did it create fairyland um, and you know, it, there's all these strange little connections and fairyland sort of created everything else. Um, but because it was nominated for Hugo and the, and Worldcon was in Australia that year in Melbourne, Melbourne, Australia. Uh, and because Expedia had screwed up a trip of mine and I had a voucher for travel, I went to Australia. Uh, and that's how I met um, the man I'm married to now, who is the father of my child. So literally my son Sebastian would not exist if not for that book. Um, and you know, he, this, this Australian man <laughs> lives with me now, uh, Heath Miller, he's done a few of my audiobooks, So some of you may know who he is. Um, and yeah, so Palimpsest even did that. Um, so uh, the, the, the child for whom pa Patreon does so much uh, came, is science fiction's baby, essentially. <laughs> uh, made that joke a lot. But um, yeah, so I actually did Patreon before Patreon. Uh, so I know how much work it is. I did something called the Omokuji Project for five years from 2008 to 2013, where I wrote a short story every month. And um, there was a digital version and a print version. The print version, like I printed it out on archival paper and we sealed it with a wax seal and they went out all over the world. Um, and that was so much work every month. I can't even express to you. Like I can't imagine still doing it by hand like that now. And my ex-husband like did the database and everything from scratch because you just had to do that stuff from scratch back then. I think that people just don't realize how much Patreon does for us. Uh, but I had to do it all myself at one point and it was a full-time job. So now I have Patreon, which makes everything much easier. Also, I don't burn myself with wax nearly as much. Um, and so every month um, there's a lot of content for different tiers, but um, I do uh, a recipe, a review of some piece of media and an essay. Um, this started out being about writing craft and business and has branched out into being an essay about, you know, just something tangentially related to um, science fiction and fantasy uh, on some level. Um, and then there's other stuff. So I post excerpts uh, of what I'm working on that month. Um, I do a postcard from one of my characters every month. Everybody comes together and chooses one um, each month. Uh, there's a Discord server. Uh, I do a little photo essay every month. There's a lot of content. Wow. <laughs> uh, that goes up that and it's all exclusive to patreon every once in a while i'll, I'll open an essay or a review um so that the, the public can read it but for the most part um it's all all just on patreon and it allows you to have freedom because yeah it allows me to have stable income between book sales to be able to know what's coming in every month you know the bare minimum of what's coming in and to not be so completely stressed about money all the time you know um like I'm, I'm the supporter of my family. So, you know, it's a very uh, <laughs> complicated thing when you have a child and Patreon is just an, an endless blessing in my life. Hmm. I'm so hmm. grateful. Thank you to anyone listening who's, who subscribes uh, or becomes a patron. It, it, is, uh, it is literally what makes being a full-time artist possible in, in this economy in this day and age. Wow. Okay. And you have... A new book coming up, right? I do. Well, I have a couple, but yeah, I do. Um, yeah, so Comfort Me with Apples is coming out in October, um, October 26th. And it is a, 
it's very much, it's my first like murder book, my, my murder mystery. Um, so it's kind of, uh, I, I, it's hard to talk about because there's a big twist. So uh, it's kind of Gone Girl meets Stepford Wives, a little bit of spinning silver in there. Um, but the the specificity of, of what the speculative element is, is um, one I can't share because it's a big spoiler. Uh, I'll just say, if you want a thriller, if you want uh, a murder mystery that is nevertheless a fantasy book, um, it is uh, quick, it is lean, it is uh, a very, I'm very, very proud of it. I wrote it for tour.com as a short story that um, got long. I turned it down, I was like, oh, sorry about the length. I know it's like a polite cough short of a novella. Um, but, you know, they accepted it. And then a couple of months later, they told me they thought it was too good for the website and they wanted to publish it as a book. Uh, so I expanded it a little bit and, and that's what's happening. So I'm very proud of that. Um, the Fairyland box set is coming out in September. Um, so that's a 10th anniversary boxed uh, set of the books. Um, and in April, uh, Osmo Unknown in the Eight Penny Woods is coming out, which is a middle grade um, fantasy. Uh, it's kind of Finnish folklore meets where the wild things are. Um, and uh, I think that I think people people who like Fairyland will like that. It's kind of Fairyland for boys. Um, and then uh, the very, the best of Catherine Valenti is a, a short story collection that's coming out um, next year. Uh, I think late next summer. Um, and then I'm I'm working on the uh, sequel to Space Opera, so that will probably be out uh, at the end of next year, beginning of of 2023. I'm not sure. That is a lot. It is a lot. It is a lot. Well, thank you very much. Is there anything you want to say that we didn't get to say that you want people to know? Uh, no, thank you so much for having me on. Just, uh, you know, uh, all of our writing careers and, and, and the journey we take to get to, you know, where we are, it, it, they're never too alike. You know, we all have different uh, winding, meandering paths to... Um, to getting our voices out there. Uh, you can hear from just the stories I've told how much good luck figured into mine and um, you know, being willing to talk to people at the right place at the right time and, and, um, and to do the work. So if you're you know, willing to make friends with your fellow geeks and uh, do the work and wait patiently, it'll happen for you too. Thank you so much for Catherine Valenti, who was very kind with her time and so truthful and open. That was really amazing. You can find her at her website, which is CatherineMValenti.com. Catherine is C-A-T-H-E-R-Y-N-N-E-M. Valenti is a V-A-L-E-N-T-E.com. Twitter at Cat Valenti. Instagram at Cat Valenti. And next time, because there's always a next time, on Geek the Mean Powers, we tackle another personal path that will take us through indie comics, web comics, and Kickstarter. Stick around for that. Geek the Mean Powers releases three episodes a week on Mondays, Wednesdays, and Fridays. Email me for silly reasons at guy.hasson, that's H-A-S-S-O-N, at geekdemeanpowers.com. The website is geekdemeanpowers.com. On Twitter, Instagram, TikTok, we're at geekdemeanpowers. My name is Guy Hasson, and if you want to check out my other podcast, The Squash Buckler Diaries, which is an experiment in epic fantasy, feel free to check it out, The Squash Buckler Diaries. I will see you next time, and for now, 
Have an empowered day.